It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What you missed this week, I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week felt like a year. Each day, the coronavirus outbreak further upended everyday life in the U.S. and Europe as major cities put massive social distancing policies in place, closing schools, bars, restaurants, gyms, movie theaters, and any other non-essential business. Life in the economic engine of the U.S., California, and New York grinded to a halt. The Federal Reserve didn't even wait for its own midweek meeting. The central bank took surprise action on Sunday evening, cutting its benchmark interest rate to near zero and announcing it would buy $700 billion in bonds. That news also upended our planned Fed special, but we kept the guests around to talk about the economic fallout from the virus and the response from governments and central bankers. First, we spoke with Scott Minard, Global Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim, and Jeffrey Rosenberg, BlackRock's Systemic Fixed Income Senior Portfolio Manager. Uh, yes, Carla, I think this is playing out pretty much according to script. Uh, I think we, we still have uh, downside room in the stock market. Uh, uh, corporate bond spreads have widened a lot. Uh, we only have been... Um, this cheap relative to U.S. Treasuries about 10 to 15 percent of the time historically, which means we're getting into the value zone. But as I remind people, value is a, a poor uh, timing tool. And we're yet to see capitulation in uh, areas like securitization. Uh, there's a lot of aircraft securitizations out there that are going to be extremely hard hit by uh, uh, airlines uh, shutting down travel. And uh, you know, until we see some uh, forced liquidation, which for the first time today, I, uh, I have a sense we are seeing uh, that uh, you know we're not going to come to a bottom. What would uh, capitulation look like to uh, your, in your view? What would you be seeing as the sign? Because there are every day we're seeing moves in different asset classes that are sort of extraordinary. Today, it's a lot of currency volatility that ha- had been sort of quiet for a while. We're also seeing incredible moves at the long end, people not wanting to hold long-duration assets. What does uh, capitulation and more of this sort of forced liquidation look like to you? Well, you know, uh, Joe, in the uh, the mini-recession of 2015 and 2016, as as an example, we saw uh, triple B CLOs trading at 60 cents on the dollar. Uh, yesterday, and I haven't seen any trades today, they were trading around 85 cents on the dollar. Now, I would argue that what we're in today is a lot worse 
than the decline in energy prices we experienced in 2015 and 16, which caused a, a credit crunch. Uh, so, you know, the fact that these markets haven't moved there, I mean, I'd like to see this sort of paper trading around 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, aircraft uh, securitizations have been trading around 7%. I think they more appropriately are at 15%. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the wholesale panic in the stock market, you know, even if we hit the next objective I have, which is around uh, 21 to 2200, we're only going to be down 37%. And, and that is not what you would expect in, a, in a, a market like this. You would expect something more like 45 to 50. All right, uh, Scott, uh, I want to bring in uh, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Rosenberg into this conversation. Uh, when we talk about the, the moves that we're seeing in this market and really to Scott's points about uh, the idea that we might be seeing a little bit of a liquidation here, this idea of everyone selling out those long positions, everyone selling out those short positions, and we combine that with the high volatility, you get this sort of weird feedback uh, loop, Jeff. Uh, when, is there anything that could sort of break that loop and at a minimum we get some degree of stability? Yeah, I think it's important to just kind of take a step back and, and appreciate just how fundamentally different this environment is and, and what is causing all the various unwinds and dislocations in financial markets has a very different root source and root cause. We are, of course, talking about the coronavirus's impact on the real economy. And unlike past crises that started in financial markets and then and then bled back into the real economy. This is going in the regular order. It's the real economy that is at a sudden stop. And what that sudden stop means is that companies have lost access to cash flow. That has pushed back into financial markets through an extremely large economy-wide sized demand for liquidity. The financial system was never designed and was never contemplated to have to bear that kind of sudden stop to the economy and push back into the financial market a demand for liquidity of that magnitude from the real economy. And so what you're seeing in financial markets is the implications of that, which is squeezing liquidity and balance sheet in every other aspect of financial markets. So it's in cross-currency basis, it's in treasury on the run, off the run, it's in the mortgage market, it's in the CP market, it's in the corporate bond market, it's in the deleveraging in risk parity and in hedge funds, it's everywhere. And so to understand the source, you can then understand the solace, the, the thing that's going to arrest that. Yeah. And yeah. that is a major fiscal policy response. You know, you had Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen and the FT today arguing for a funding for lending scheme. Different kinds of emergency schemes than what we saw during the 08 crisis. You're seeing a lot of the 08 playbook getting kind of replayed, but it's a different yeah. environment and it's a different source. So it's really about getting the funding directly from fiscal sources. Treasury and taxpayers supported yeah. with federal funding that gets the liquidity of the size that companies need. When you get that, and you can see those are the programs that are, are being debated right now, when you get that, that will ease the burden on this demand from the from the financial markets that it can't bear, and, and we'll see the bottoming beginning to form when we get to that 
clarity. Okay, you make a great case here for the demand for liquidity from the real economy reverberating in the financial markets here. Um, but clearly, we're all accustomed to looking at things through this uh, framework, through the lens of the great financial crisis. Um, as policymakers bandy about big numbers, it was $1.2 trillion, now it's $1.3 trillion. Do we have the wherewithal to come up with a package that meets the needs of the real economy? Is an announcement of an agreement sufficient, or does the money have to hit the companies for st stability to come back? Well, the, the announcement helps because the announcement says the cavalry is coming, that you're not on your own, that you're not having to do it by yourself and having to rely on me machinations and uh, backup liquidity plans that we're never contemplating this degree of stress in your fundamental operations. No one ever stress tested this degree of, of shutdown in liquidity. And so the preemptive kind of reaction is overstressing the financial market. So the announcement itself can let corporate financial officers, treasurers, businesses take a, a collective sigh out and say, okay, I have other sources. Now, eventually, yes, Scarlett, you've got to get those sources up and running. But just the idea that they're coming and you're not on your own can help to alleviate some of what we're seeing here as, as, as a, a lot of demand, you know, dashed for cash. Usually we think of that as a financial market concept, but mm -hmm. it's really dashed for cash in the real economy that's yeah. happening. Yeah. And that can help to, to address some of that uh, uh, you know, real panic that's going on. Scott, one of the big question marks that hangs out there is what happens to the industries that are truly uh, the tip of the spear of this economic crisis? And of course, talking about things like hospitality and hotels, but also airlines and lots of talk about whether they will need a bailout and how much cash they have left. More headlines every day about them doing everything they can to conserve every dollar. What do you see as the fate of publicly traded airlines? Well, uh, I mean, look, the, the publicly traded airlines, there's going to be a big political debate here. Uh, and that is that uh, over the last 10 years, in the wake of the uh, great financial crisis, uh, airlines have purchased back $45 billion with, worth of stock. Today, they're asking for approximately $50 billion worth of aid to bail them out. I think that is a, a political nightmare. Uh, the, the people who uh, uh, thought that the bailout of the big companies was bad uh, in the financial crisis uh, are going to look at this and say, why don't we let these people just go bankrupt? Uh, the reality is in bankruptcy, uh, Chapter 11 reorganization, airlines continue to operate. It's not like people aren't going to be able to fly their destinations. But, you know, I am, a, I am an avowed capitalist. And, uh, you know, there are situations where you have to allow the, the people that are getting the return for the risk actually bear the risk and, and not have uh, the government bailing them out. So, Scott, though, I mean, uh, just to follow up on that point here, I, I mean, part of the concern here is that with certain industries, they're so interconnected with the rest of the economy. And so if you allow that risk to bear itself out in the extreme that this could potentially uh, occur, uh, does that not then hurt industries maybe that are uh, adjacent to the airlines that maybe, I guess, for lack of a better word, deserve it? Well, you know, Romain, that's a, that's a great question. And it's the question of moral hazard, uh, you know, which has been building ever since the 1930s within the financial system. 
uh, you know, I, I spoke with Treasury yesterday uh, and, uh, and, and the Office of Management and Budget, and my recommendation to them was if we really felt that uh, an industry or a company like Boeing uh, is so essential uh, to the U.S. economy, uh, then, you know, loan guarantees, uh, you know, could be offered, but the borrowers should pay a fee to get them. They should pay uh, the same thing you would pay if you were getting a letter of credit from a commercial bank. And in addition to that, uh, they should get, uh, the, the government should get warrants uh, on on the stock, you know, 20% of the company. I mean, let's face it, we're, we're asking the U.S. government to stand in the, the position of being a distressed investor. They need to think of it that way, and they need to tra build transactions uh, which, uh, you know, actually give upside participation to the taxpayers who are, are bearing the burden of this crisis. Now, how we address the problems in the airline industry, of course, raises a question of how we address the problems in the hotel industry and the cruise line industry. Jeff, um, how do you see this playing out when it comes to the troubled industry and the targeted aid that we need to provide them? Does it necessarily set a precedent for how we do each uh, address each industry? It, it's very difficult for the reasons that Scott just laid out. It's a it's a political nightmare. Um, there are other ways of, of, of handling it. The fund for lending scheme, putting the onus more on the businesses themselves. To I think this is this has been the Wall Street Journal op-ed perspective on this. To to put the onus more on businesses themselves rather than politicians to dictate what the what the industries are that need it. Um, but certainly. The point of all of this conversation is that we, we need an airline industry. Uh, we need a hotel industry. And you want to avoid the unnecessary harm to the industries, to the employees, to the partners, to the clients from a, a distressed situation right. of dealing with it in the pure uh, default fashion. There are a lot of unnecessary costs that will be borne that you could avoid, and that's where government intervention can be helpful. The exact form is difficult. That's why this is in the phase three portion. Mm -hmm. But seeing some of that support, I think, is critical because that will help to alleviate the the more longer dated harm. What we're going for here is is we're in we're going we're in recession. The economy is shut down. It's how long will it last right. and what will the economy look like on the way out. You want to maximize your ability to return to your prior and, and even above that. Uh, and when you don't implement these kinds of measures, then you're, you're actually doing more harm than good. It's challenging to get the balance of interest correct, but the overall goal there should be to mitigate unnecessary damage. Uh, Jeffrey, I just want to ask you what you make of the sell-off uh, at the long end of government bond curves all around the world. 1.17 uh, <clears throat> on the U.S. 10-year. It's not particularly high, but it is moving higher on a day that's extreme risk off. We're see we saw it all across Europe today. What's driving it, in your view? Is it this handoff from monetary to fiscal? Is it extreme positioning? Is it the deleveraging of risk parity-esque-ish funds? What is the, uh, the main catalyst, in your view, for this move and the, way, uh, the, the odd behavior of it? So uh, th there's a couple of things going on. <laughs> these markets are moving so quickly that we're really talking about a number of different effects happening 
um, at, at different times. So the first one, the, the kind of odd behavior in some market days when we've been down big on stocks and you have seen the back end of the market uh, yields on the 30-year going higher, that's, that's very indicative of what you were just suggesting, this kind of environment of uh, risk parity off kind of uh, move. Um, but today, oh, sorry, just to expand on that a little bit. And so the issue with the risk parity off means that strategies that relied on an expected relationship between treasuries and equities, those are breaking down. Right. They also rely a lot on leverage. And so the combination of the increasing cost of use of leverage, the uncertainty in what the hedge ratio and the relationship should be, is forcing those strategies to just de-risk both sides of the trade, reducing the equities and reducing the bonds. And so that's where you see that kind of odd behavior. I think what you saw separately today in coming out of Europe in terms of higher interest rates is, is really um, you know, a new phase and a new question about what is the size of the fiscal policy response going to be? How will it be financed? And what is the ability of the ECB, I would say the ability and the willingness of the ECB to absorb that within the confines, construct, and uh, constraints of its institutional makeup? I think you had a lot of questions going yeah. on around the ECB after uh, uh, Lagarde's comments that were, you know, negatively interpreted by the, the financial markets. They've since walked that back. But there's a lot of uncertainty about how you manage that. I think ultimately it, it can be managed. It requires more aggressive um, intervention, perhaps the triggering of ESM and OMT, perhaps as, as Merkel was, was – uh, there were some headlines today about uh, fiscalization um, uh, at, the, at the euro uh, level and, and eurobond issuance. Yeah. That can all mitigate that. But in the uncertainty, there's a big price right. to pay for what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, very large fiscal support has to be funded. And so you saw some rise in yields as a result of that. Okay, so Scott, come back into this conversation and talk about that fiscal support, because obviously that means a lot of government bor borrowing here. Uh, the general consensus seems to be that this is what's going to have to happen. You have more government borrowing at extreme levels. You have the Fed sort of peg interest rates down to zero or something very low. I guess the question is, what sort of distortions does that create for uh, market participants in the fixed income market? And does this end up being something like a bridge that then gets unwound once we sort of get through this? Or is this going to end up being a long-term structural change to the fixed income market? Well, Romain, to get to the, the last question first, this is going to be a long-term structural change. Uh, when you, you look at uh, the volume of U.S. Treasury securities that are being issued, approximately $1.2 trillion a year, and then you look at uh, domestic savings last year at about $1.2 trillion, uh, corporate savings at $500 million, and then uh, state and local uh, deficits of three to $400 million, uh, you know, our, the savings equation was in balance. But now, you know, when we go into, uh, uh, let's say, a trillion-dollar program, uh, you have uh, $2.2 trillion in borrowing. Uh, the corporate savings is disappearing. The personal savings isn't going to get any better because people are going to dissave to keep their houses and so forth. And, uh, and I think state and local government's going to have to continue to spend or increase spending. So since that, that doesn't balance, that is, you, we have about a trillion or so, uh, maybe a little more shortfall uh, in the available credit in the financial system, 
uh, it's going to force the central bank uh, to have to participate and uh, provide uh, you know, purchases of these securities. So our, our view is that ultimately this is going to be uh, QE5 uh, and that uh, we would expect about four and a half trillion dollars of quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. but, in the, but in the near term, you know, to go to the private sector, uh, this is crowding everybody out. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the availability of credit to run business uh, is is essentially drying up right now, and uh, it's uh, it's becoming a crisis. Are we going to need Scott new uh, a stretching say of the Fed's mandate to get the credit taps flowing again beyond this? I mean, you say QE, but you know the government doesn't need more money to buy Treasuries per se, or doesn't need a backstop for Treasuries, as you say it's cr private credit. Are we going to need, do you see, I mean, we had a Bernanke and Yellen talking about backstopping or buying corporate debt, kind of like what Mario Draghi or what the ECB does. Do you see that here? Uh, well, I think they're going to have to revisit programs uh, similar to TARP and TALF. Uh, you know, the, the TARP program was about $700 billion, as I recall. And then TALF was the troubled asset lending facility that was provided by the Fed. Uh, if you got uh, protection from TARP on first loss. Uh, I think, uh, Joe, you know, we should probably expect something like that. I think it's absolutely necessary. And, uh, you know, I've been saying that I think it would take about a $2 trillion TARP program and then uh, a TALF program that would be as large as necessary. But one thing I'd, I'd like to just comment that Jeffrey said, and, and I agree with his comment that we should try to avoid uh, the unnecessary costs of bankruptcy. Right. But to try to salvage these industries or companies one by one uh, is going to turn into a massive challenge because every one of them is going to have to go through Congress. And, uh, you know, we see how slowly Congress has been moving on the existing legislation. So uh, I believe it would be, uh, uh, you know, necessary here to just say, look, we're going to set aside a slush fund. And uh, it's going to have certain rules around it. And, and uh, the administration, Treasury, uh, the Federal Reserve can act quickly mm -hmm. uh, because I, I recall Lehman and uh, the Thursday before Lehman failed, I think I was on Bloomberg uh, talking about the fact that we would have to resolve Lehman by Sunday because on Monday we had to get to AIG and by Tuesday we would have to be with CIT and we don't have time to come up with solutions for every company. So, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's it's ultimately going to require, uh, you know, a, a massive program uh, that doesn't have to go through approval for every transaction with Congress. Another industry that, of course, uh, is hard hit is oil, but we kind of almost put it aside. On any other day, it would be the lead story. It kind of has become the sidebar here in coronavirus uh, era. Jeff, I want to get your take, because how do you fold in the plunging price of oil into your analysis? Mm. Uh, WTI, for instance, right, right now off 25%, hitting a low of $20.06 a barrel. The free fall that we have seen in oil prices is certainly a deflationary force, if nothing else. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Scarlett. In, on any other normal world, uh, this would have been the main story, the, the, the Saudi-Russia catalyst. Uh, it's really just gotten buried as part of a much, much bigger story, which is effectively the, the major parts of the global economy on a temporary shutdown, which which from the oil perspective is, is shutting down the demand. 
And so you have this major demand-side shock, and you have companies whose balance sheets can't uh, stomach that, and that puts them into distress. Um, but it, it's really become almost secondary because of the other because of the other issues. Um, that's not to say that those aren't significant issues, and certainly where there's concentrations and concentrations of exposures, you, you, you talked about earlier, you know, the impact in the high yield market. But yep. we're really beyond these kind of, you know, in 2015, 2016, it was the only story. Here, it's it's part of a much bigger story. Where the bigger story is. What is the recessionary impact? What is the distress impact Scott was just talking about across all of these industries? What will the policy response be to truncate and mitigate that? Or will it not be large enough and that there, the lingering effects lead to a deeper, longer recession? These are the much bigger, broader issues that, that once we get through this kind of technical issue of liquidity squeeze, which is what's affecting financial markets right now, yeah. and we contemplate what does the shape of the recovery look like, because, you know, we're in we're in the middle of it right now, and, it, and everything seems very bad, and, and we're getting a lot of difficult headlines in our personal lives and with regards to the health and, and, and safety issues, but we, we will get through it. We know that is the case because we see that in the East. And as we do that, then we can contemplate what does the, the path of recovery look like. And that will very much hinge on these two issues. One, what, what is the, the, the efficacy and the strength of that fiscal policy response? And two, how much damage did we allow our economy to go through as a result of this dislocation? If we can mitigate the latter uh, and, and, and improve the policy response on the former, you can yeah. get to a shape of recovery that's better that kind of mitigates the long-term damage. Scott, when you look at some of the uh, dislocations we have had in the market and uh, really the monetary policy response or the Fed response in general, uh, there's been some discussion that the Fed should maybe uh, broaden out the scope of what it buys, people talking about municipal bonds. We know that the market's been calling for some sort of term auction facility. Uh, we obviously don't have any indication whether that's going to happen, but we have seen some of the Fed presidents discussing this publicly. Uh, do you think that there is more in this environment that the Fed can do on its own from a monetary policy perspective? Well, the, the Fed really uh, has its hands tied, uh, especially in the wake of uh, Dodd-Frank and the, the uh, financial crisis where more restrictions were put on them. Uh, they are not, uh, they cannot buy uh, municipal bonds or corporate bonds or equities directly onto their balance sheet. Uh, they can only buy uh, U.S. Treasuries, agencies, and gold. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, they really are handcuffed until Congress gives them more authority. And it's going to take, I think, some leadership from the White House if they, they want to give that authority to the Fed. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I would categorize what the Fed has done as, as necessary to this point, but not adequate. And, and let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. uh, the trillion-dollar commercial paper funding facility, uh, it buys A1P1 commercial paper. There's about $450 billion worth of A1P1 commercial paper and about $500 billion of A2P2 paper, which doesn't uh, they can't buy. Uh, the, uh, the A2P2 paper uh, are the companies that are weaker and actually are going to need the help uh, to uh, to keep them going. So, you know, the, the, the facility is great. Uh, I'm glad it's there to backstop uh, the A1P1 companies, 
but uh, it's it's not doing anything for the companies that are the most vulnerable in terms of getting cut off from yeah. the money markets. Uh, Jeff, earlier Scott was talking about with flashback to Lehman and the t the race against time. How much do we lose economically every day that we hear, oh, they're not ready with the bailout with the uh, stimulus or the fiscal package in D.C. Oh, maybe it'll be next week. How urgent is it? to get money out the door today? Well, you're seeing that effect in, in financial markets right now. Um, I, I think it's exacerbated a bit by the, the competition for liquidity between the real economy and, and the financial economy, and that's forcing a financial economy, economy deleveraging. So I, I, I think, you know, just purely looking at financial markets may be overstating the degree of damage to the real economy. Now, that's not to say that there's not real damage here in terms of a wealth effect in investors' portfolios. But a lot of what's going on in the markets is this squeeze of liquidity forcing these unwinds. But that is not necessarily indicative of the degree of damage to the real economy. That is in front of us, as, as Scott was describing, in terms right. of the, the industries and the potential uh, the potential failures. I think that you know the urgency with regards to time. You know, it's a, it's a tough question to ask in this environment when we're having a very similar question. You know, with regards to health and and, and safety around flattening the curve and the exponential. So. You know, I don't think it's as dire as, as those things, and I think that keeps it in its proper perspective. Um, but it, it's important that we recognize how much progress we've already made. You know, a week ago, we were not here. A week ago, Congress and fiscal policy was not here. Leadership was not here. Um, and now we are. And so I think it's important to highlight that we are making those progress, and that's human you know, flexibility and ingenuity. And with that will come uh, a mitigation. If we wait forever and, and don't have any of those measures economically, yeah, yeah of course, that's going to be pretty damaged. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Then we caught up with Diane Swunk, chief economist at Grant Thornton, and Nick Maroutsis, co-head of Global Bonds at Janice Henderson. Well, it's already happening, and as you already laid out, and we've got the same thing here in Chicago now beginning as well, and that is that you know people are literally being laid off overnight. I talked to, I had to cancel my mother's 80th birthday party in May, and I talked to the restaurant where the university town, where they closed the dorms, and the weekend before, um, kids had shown up who were waitstaff who had nowhere to live, and then two days later she had to lay them off. It was just heartbreaking. And that's what we're dealing with is mass layoffs right now. The unemployment, many states have you know accelerated that. The unemployment claims tomorrow will be high. We're gonna see a big jump the following week. These are millions and millions of jobs overnight. And it's what's so unique about this economic effects is it's just literally 
a standstill in the overall economy from the manufacturing sector, plant shutting down to the service sector. And people who are shut in their apartments and in their homes can literally not go out and go shopping beyond necessity. So this is really a very difficult situation on an economic basis to even model. Uh, but it would be it, it is important that we have stopgap measures, even though we cannot prevent the recession that is already we're in, we can make it the ground firmer so that once we get through it, we keep people solvent and firm solvent. Bailouts are going to be out there. People don't like this. Throw your ideology to the wind. This mm. is not the time to be have ideological biases. And we need to be in a place where we can pick up again once the virus abates. And also, we get antiviral drugs and can manage it better with more mm -hmm. testing. Well said, Diane. And of course, from the bottom up, in terms of what you see in the damage uh, in the streets and on the real economy, we're seeing that reflected in financial markets. I have a uh, chart on my terminal here, which looks at financial conditions. And clearly, there's stress. Um, the white line shows how quickly financial conditions have deteriorated this go-round. The blue line shows what happened in the fall of 2008. The y-axis measures the standard deviation of the move. In 2008, the financial conditions worsened by 6.6 .6 standard deviations relative to the mean. Today, it is 5.4 times. Pretty stunning moves, at least in the first 25 days of this cycle here. Nick, bringing you into the conversation, we know the central banks, led by the Federal Reserve, have been doing what they can to ease financial conditions. What, does, what do all these extraordinary moves, whether it's uh, interest rate cuts or quantitative easing or uh, new lending facilities, what do they do for the real economy, for the, real, for the companies that are distressed versus what does it not do? Well, look, I think I think Diane's exactly right when she said that we have to throw our ideologies out the window with respect to bailouts and what's happening in the economy. The, the key, the critical thing is that we're facing now from monetary policy perspective is that the Fed has already cut interest rates to zero. They've done what they can there. They need to start increasing reserves via QE and trying to figure out ways that they can ease credit. And I think the credit of the, the credit easing component is going to be very interesting because it sort of flies into the face what we saw back in 2008 with bailing out the banks and whatnot. But again, that's that's all out the window. In addition to that, we're going to see stimulus that is going to be led by fiscal policy because you can make the case that monetary, monetary policy is having less and less of an impact. We're seeing that in the bond space now. Bonds are not rallying as much as they as they had been previously. We saw the ten year hit a low of thirty basis points. Now it's trading well over one percent. The, the the effects of fixed income really aren't there. And whether that's an unwinding of the risk parity trade, whether that's the expectations of a large fiscal plan coming down the chute, it remains to be seen. But ultimately, we need to provide the necessary financial relief, such as tax tax breaks, loan guarantees, subsidized credit remove the solvency risk and allow these companies to prepare for recovery once the crisis is over. We need to provide a bridge yeah. for the consumers and the businesses. And ultimately, that's going to fall on the government and central bank shoulders, and they're going to have to wear that tab. Uh, so, Nick, I mean, when we talk about, I mean, use the word bridge there. I mean, so when we talk about uh, the potential uh, package that we finally do get, which will most likely be multiple packages coming uh, out of Washington and the other major governments around the world. Is the idea here that they should be structuring this as something that is short term, meaning a patch to sort of uh, get consumers and businesses over this hump? Or should they be looking at things that are a little bit broader and a little bit more structural in terms of the changes? Well, to be honest, it's, it's a slippery slope, right? You know, we have we, we obviously are in a, a very much a crisis situation, and it's it's one that's not really led by 
a buildup of imbalances like we saw in 2008. This is an exogenous shock that literally came out of the blue. And while that argues for the current slowdown to be short and deep, like Diane said, we are in a recession. I think people need to realize the fact that that, that's certainly the situation that we're in. We do have the ability, potentially, if we can curb the number of infections and get past this, to kind of revert back to similar days of what we were used to, a bit more normalcy. So that definitely, you don't want to run the risk of implementing too big of a a fiscal pass package to where it becomes harder and harder to unwind because ultimately I think the demand will come back. It's going to take a lot of time. I think a lot of people are, are sort of licking their wounds in this space, but you don't want to be in a position where uh, the fiscal stimulus is so large, it's kept on the balance, it kept on the books for far too long, and ultimately that leads to more inflationary pressures down the chute, down the, down the pipe, excuse me. Okay. Interesting take there. Uh, Diane, I want to toss it over to you. What do you think? Uh, when Nick says you don't want a fiscal stimulus that's too big, the latest number we had from Secretary Steve, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is $1.3 trillion. Is that too big? He's also thrown out numbers like 20% unemployment without government intervention. Is that too big? What's, how do we come up with a number that's reasonable and not too big? Well, I think actually right now you throw everything to the wind and you do whatever you can to keep to bridge this period in time. And, you know, whether it's a trillion dollars, a trillion three, it's got to be big. It, go big, go large. But I think what Nick was pointing to is that, you know, what do you have that lasts after that? Do something temporary now to make sure there is an end date to this virus. There is an end date to the outbreak. Even with a second wave, we'll have more testing. We'll be able to manage it better. We can take the lessons from other countries that have been much more aggressive on testing, much more aggressive on technology, know where hotspots are, be able to not have many, as many disruptions to our economy and manage the virus even before we have a, an actual vaccine that will allow us to ramp up again but you need to have an economy to ramp up from, and that's the key. The other issue is that the, the Fed stimulus that we have today, the cuts in rates today, Chairman Powell himself said, this is not going to have much of an effect until we get after over this hump. The housing market booming going into this crisis, it is one of the few things that could not drive us out of the yeah. recession in 2008, 2009. It is poised to come back if we bridge the COVID-tainted waters. Okay, well, Diane, just expand on that a little bit because, I mean, there is this idea of making sure that whatever stimulus we do get, that it is a little bit more targeted, that we're just not sort of raining uh, money down indiscriminately. Uh, when you look at the housing market and you look at how it has sort of been uh, the bulwark for a good part of our expansion, our economic expansion uh, coming out of the uh, the Great Recession here. Is there a sense here that some of these industries could sort of snap back on their own, or is it just basically now a, a foregone conclusion uh, that the government basically has to provide some sort of financial assistance to these industries directly? Well, it's not that the housing market needs financial assistance, but certainly we need assistance to make sure the housing market can come back. We need to make sure that consumers and home buyers, prospective home buyers, the pent-up demand we've got out there, the underbuilding that we've got out there is not in such a precarious position that they can't come back quickly out of this. And I think that's where we have to focus our efforts is bridging this period in time. It's not just indiscriminate, but it is hard to discriminate which firms that are close to insolvency um, were bad before this and you know now they're now they're just they should just disappear we can't afford that luxury right now that's where the ideology part gets thrown out but it's not indiscriminate right now they're not talking about subsidies for the housing industry but if we preserve consumers in some way that they can bridge this they can come out the other side of it and respond to lower interest rates they're refinancing the intervention in the mortgage market necessary to keep 
consumers refinancing, keep the, the banks are in a better position to do this now. All of that is very important to keep people intact mm. so that they can bounce off of this later on. Right, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I wonder to Nick, um, what we're seeing right now, all this shelter in place and the work from home, I mean, you're speaking to us from home right now. Are there going to be permanent behavioral changes as a result? I mean, perhaps more people working from home, certainly on Wall Street, that could continue for a while. Uh, maybe an acceleration to online grocery shopping, uh, an entire generation obsessed with making sure they don't uh, fall short of toilet paper. Um, in the markets, Nick, do you see any kind of behavioral changes that may last beyond the virus outbreak? Sure, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we, we are, the way we consume is going to change. The way we work is going to change. And this is a direct result of what's happening with the, with the, the coronavirus. I mean, the isolation component is, is a tricky one because it's forcing people to stay at home. It's forcing kids to stay home from school. And it's really sort of changing the landscape of what we do and how we do it. Now, as it pertains to the markets, you know, I think you're going to probably see a growing number of people wanting to work from home, but this is going to take time. I think ultimately we will get back to a sense of normalcy. And, you know, it's not all doom and gloom out there despite what we're seeing in the marketplace. And, you know, just to clarify the earlier comment that, that, that Diane hinted on is that we, we want a huge package. We think that it's necessary. Uh, our only argument was more along the line of keeping it around too long. You're seeing other countries like France and New Zealand and Spain implementing fiscal plans that are in excess of 10% of GDP. You know, if the U.S. was to do something of that equivalency, you're talking about close to $2 trillion. So, you know, anything over, anything with a T behind it, I think is going to have a remarkable effect, but ultimately boils down to, can we curb the number of infections? We are looking at Asia as an indication of, of how this could all play out. But ultimately, we need to be looking at Western Europe. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the mindset of the, of the Asian countries is quite differently. Geographically, they're typically islands. Uh, culturally, there's more of an authoritarian model. Whatever the government deems necessary, people will generally be on board. I think using the U.S., as, as some of our colleagues here in Newport Beach and one of our analysts has pointed out, is that... If, even if the U.S. is encouraging social distancing, we should be looking at the European countries as a benchmark, not necessarily Asia. We are hearing a little bit more from uh, President uh, Trump uh, saying in a tweet uh, that he wants all Americans to understand that, in his words, we are at war with an invisible enemy. He says that it's an enemy that is no match for the spirit and resolve of the American people. Uh, Nick, we've seen the tone out of Washington uh, become a lot more serious uh, become a lot more dire and, frankly, uh, becoming a lot more proactive, which seems to be something that is encouraging to a lot of folks out there, even if it's not necessarily reflected in asset prices. I'm wondering if you can just sort of broaden this out beyond the U.S. borders, because there is still not a global coordinated effort, or at least not one that we sort of saw back during the financial crisis and the committee to save the world. Is that even necessary at this point? Can sort of individual nations just sort of go this uh, on their own, do what's right for their own nations, and that will somehow synchronize up down the road and we get a global recovery? Or do you think that there is a little bit more coordination uh, between the nations needed? I, I think, Romain, I think certainly coordination is required because you look at what, like I said earlier, the Asian economies are, are doing. Um, which is very different than what's happening in the Western Western economies. And I mean, Western Europe, I mean, parts of the U.S., 
each and every state is doing things differently. You have countries like Australia that are just starting to shut down schools, but then you have the other side of the coin where you have the U.K., which is taking a completely different approach to how they're addressing the, the coronavirus. They're not necessarily talking about locking people up or keeping people in lockdown, working from home. It's actually more about exposing people a la the sort of chickenpox mentality. So it, it, people are doing things very, very differently. I think fiscally, everybody is on board. From a monetary policy, everybody's coordinated. Rates are going to zero across the board. You're going to see quantitative easing, yield curve control across the board. You're going to see everybody dust off all the old programs, programs that they had in the crisis, whether it's the CPFF, it's the TARP, CALF, whatever you want to name it. The, the central banks and governments are going to throw every single piece of ammunition behind this and they possibly can't. Okay, so going on that, Diane, you know, we have this temptation to compare what we're seeing right now to the great financial crisis. And for those of us who were covering the crisis or who invested during it or were analyzing economies during that period, it makes sense to interpret things through that prism. But is that a useful frame of reference for investors, for policymakers, or does it hold us back in any way? Well, I think the, the important thing is this was a health crisis that is now metastasized into a financial crisis. And we need to stop the, both from, you know, in terms of we have to control through everything we can on the healthcare side to manage the health crisis, but we also need to stop the metastasization, the sort of mutation into this financial crisis because that leaves us even deeper. Recovering from a virus and an illness that stops everything if you keep a floor on it so that people don't all go insolvent, that is not as hard as recovering from a financial crisis. And making it a dual problem is something we really do have to avoid. And underscoring and dovetailing off what Nick said, the need for coordination on dealing with the pandemic, the global pandemic, is huge. And the idea that we are not only seeing a lack of coordination, but we're also seeing this sort of piecemeal approach by state, yeah. um, in the U.S., by country, that is not helpful. We need to have a unified, coordinated, and I think it, it really reflects the frayed nerves and the frayed relationships of the last several years yeah. that we've gotten to this point where we don't trust each other anymore. And it's not just a fight for the U.S. We are globally in a fight together against the novel coronavirus. So, Diane, I mean, we started to see uh, those responses globally. We saw uh, Germany actually take some steps to sort of uh, loosen up credit a little bit, uh, dropping that counter-cyclical buffer for its banks. We just have a headline crossing the wire that France is also taking its capital buffers for banks down to zero. Would you like to see the U.S. follow that same path? The U.S. Is, is going to be doing all of that as well. The Federal Reserve, I thought that Yellen and Bernanke's um, piece today in the Financial Times was very good, their op-ed piece, talking about other tools and things they could even intervene in the corporate bond market, get you know permission, get coordinate with Congress and Treasury to do things that they did during the crisis, reinstate some of the ability to be much more flexible in dealing with the financial crisis that is now we're now seeing. And I think that's very important. But I really would like to see much more coordinated effort that we're working on all this together, not all these countries doing this alone. You are seeing things happening synchronously, but it's not coordinated. And I think there is a sense of the whole being greater than some of the parts. And the idea that we're battling all this together would be much more powerful for financial markets as well. Nick, um, I want to get a final question to you here. When you look across the markets, where do you see the greatest disruption? Is it in FX today with uh, the, the, the need for dollars and uh, sterling's move? Uh, five big numbers is just not something you see for a major currency pair. What does that tell you? 
So there is a obviously a dollar liquidity issue. And the Fed is going to have to step in and increase swap lines or open up the swap lines to other countries outside the G7. And that means emerging market countries because they're not really, they don't really have access to that capital. I mean, the biggest dislocation that we see, obviously, is in the credit markets. Um, the market is essentially broken right now, and I think it's growing increasingly less liquid, which means that even more extreme price volatility in the future. And I think for now, until the panic subsides, this is going to be a buyer's market until things improve, and it's going to it's going to take some time. We're seeing continuous corporate outflows, and the dynamic is is, is certainly dangerous, particularly when you move to more the lower-rated assets, talking about high yield or more the illiquid assets like bank loans and whatnot. Credit easing through the corporate market is going to be an extremely powerful tool that the Fed and other central banks are going to have to look to. And while they're going to have to get some form of government approval for that um, or legislative approval for that because uh, it, it certainly uh, flies into the face of, of Dodd-Frank, mm-hmm. ultimately we have to hit the right. markets that are hit the hardest, and, and that's going to be the credit side of things. As the world's major cities inch closer to shutdown, Yossi Sheffi, systems engineering professor and director of the MIT Center for Transportation, joined us to talk about the impact on supply chains. He also offered some suggestions on navigating essential outside trips in the safest way. We need to start thinking out of the box. We are doing certain things already. There is a push by the federal government and, and by the military to supply more hospital beds and more uh, healthcare providers. But let's think about the following. We have a huge shortage of nurse and we have lots of flight attendants who are uh, who have training in uh, first aid and they have nothing to do. They can serve on voluntary basis, of course, they can serve frontline in, uh, uh, in hospital. We also need equipment. Now, instead of uh, when we are talking about beds and masks and gloves and uh, protective equipment, I do not understand even the, um, the shortage right now because the United States has the ability to manufacture. We may have to commandeer some plant, but we right. have to start making this at a much higher rate. Finally, let me suggest that we can also build, not you know, from one day to the next, but very quickly, sophisticated machines like ventilators if we start thinking about what's called 3D printing. Hmm. For this, we, we all, there are companies like General Electric who are building jet engine park part with 3D printing, and they have the capacity, they have dozens and dozens of machines, they also make machines, and there are many other companies that can be um, told or volunteers to start making ventilators yeah. for which we need only, only the blueprint, the digital blueprint. So in terms of manpower, in terms of the simple stuff, and even in terms of sophisticated stuff, if, we, if the um, right. private sector in particular get together and start working on this, we should be in this in, in a matter of two, three weeks before we right. hit the big peak of this uh, of the coronavirus okay well that's uh, the if pandemic. It, that's the if professor and you use the words told or volunteered i guess is there someone or something that should sort of be coordinating this so that we sort of marshal all of these resources or do we have the type of capital markets here where we can sort of trust uh, that private companies will sort of find a way to sort of do this on their own we are people are putting what a trillion dollar i mean 
you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, pretty much we are talking about real money. So <laughs> the money yeah. is here. Yeah. So um, the, the government can start a fund. What we also have to do at this with regard to military and the government to suspend some of the procurement rules. We cannot ask for, you know, uh, uh, several proposals and get the best part and all this. Let's just get it done. Mm -hmm. So Cong Congress can suspend many of the procurement rule so we don't have to wait that long. Uh, you know, the president is talking about um, suspending some regulation. These are the regulations right now need to be suspended. A lot of the um, government and Pentagon procurement rule so they can they can buy. Yeah. And at this point, the Pentagon, you know, the Pentagon can sure, have the money. Right, right. So, yeah. uh, so we can buy for, uh, we can certainly motivate the private sector to change and do something. Right. Okay, clearly you are an advocate of common sense solutions because these all sound very reasonable. Um, one thing I do want to get your take on, since you are an expert in systems optimization, is um, the idea of social distancing. People are no longer showing up at work in the office, they're working from home, uh, children are not in school anymore, but one place we are congregating is at the supermarket or in front of the supermarket when we're trying to get in or at the supermarket when we're paying for all of our what rice and beans and and frozen Sazon. dinners yes um professor is there a way to avoid people getting too close to each other infecting each other while they're standing in line trying to buy the groceries so that they can shelter at home i am glad you asked this question because I actually thought about it, and we, we can do several simple steps, well, I don't know, sim relatively simple steps. First, by the way, allow stores to charge less. Here in Massachusetts, of course, it's the, you know, somewhat progressive state. We frown on companies charging more for the good, but charging more when, when demand is high will uh, deter hoarding and will increase supply. Second, we are shortening hours for the supermarket, which is, how shall I say, not great because you concentrate more people in a smaller number of hours. Mm -hmm. And now let me talk about the process. Stores should divide people into two, segment people into two groups. One group is techie, is people who can operate smartphones. It's basically they need to call ahead and order, establish the time when uh, the store should text them when the order is ready. Customers should take the car and, run, and come to the store approximately when time is ready text to the store that they are there, open the trunk, stand next, to, and not get out of the car. Open the trunk, get back into the car, let somebody bring the order into the car, and drive away, assuming they are already paid online. By the way, the first two, both the, the uh, price and this, will also reduce the number of people who are coming to the store and allow the associate to stack the shelf more. Then there's a group who needs to pay cash. They don't speak English, I mean, there's immigrants what have you, they need, they need to go to the store. The store should allow only a limited number of the time. I hope with all the other things that the store will do, there yeah. will be limited hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and, then, and then they can use a numbering system, like you go to the, I don't know, to the uh, uh, DMV, in the entrance, in the wow. entrance yeah. to, the, uh, 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 to, the, to the parking lot, you take a number, and then they, they allow only a certain number, you wait in the car and they allow only a certain number into the store. Another thing they should do, they should make all the aisles one way, so people don't run across from each other. They just, you know, uh, they can keep distance. Finally, at the counter, when they're about to pay, you should make six feet apart, or whatever the distance is, lines that people will stand on these lines and not 
uh, crowd uh, into each other. And by the way, make sure that the cashiers use masks yeah. and wear gloves. The combination of all of this right. will allow us to reduce the number of the store so people who need it will get to the store and will right. be able to get right. the stuff. Final, final comment. Final okay, go comment. ahead. Final comment. The, the name social distancing is wrong. Okay. We should call it physical distancing. Oh, we should good keep one. Social, con social connection all the time. In ah. fact, one of the most dangerous things is to, to create social distancing. Let's talk from now on about physical distancing. I like that. Social distancing, yeah. on all, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's on Hangout, whether it's uh, you know, telephone, people should keep in touch a lot more even than usual because that's a danger of isolating people. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.